If you've got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open it to the book of Romans chapter 1, right after the book of Acts, the first of the letters we have there uh, in the New Testament. And today, as I mentioned earlier, we are beginning a new series in Romans chapters 1 through 3. We're calling it Revealed. You'll see there in your worship guide. And you know, Romans, the book of Romans has been probably the most influential New Testament book in, in, a, in a, the last, I don't know, thousand years, 500 years especially of church history, uh, in a lot of the uh, people that God has used most mildly over the last several hundred years, uh, this particular book moved on their heart. When I think of like Martin Luther, right? Uh, the, you might say uh, the one who, who God used to, in many ways his pen to spark uh, the Great Reformation. Martin Luther was converted while reading a passage from the book of Romans. And actually most of the great reformers were, were captivated by the book of Romans, entrenched in the book of Romans. And I believe, personally, that if we get captivated by the gospel-centric message in Romans that this book has the power to change our lives, to change our church, and to fuel us to work to see gospel transformation among our neighbors like never before. We've titled this series Revealed because that is what happens in this book, especially in chapters 1 through 3. It is one of those books that really reveals and makes known some incredible truths. God's righteousness, we'll see, is revealed. Our, our sin is revealed. Our only hope, the gospel, is revealed. And in chapters 1 through 3, the most important information in the world is shared right here in these first three chapters that we're going to spend the next several weeks in. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the apostle Paul reveals some incredible truth, incredible truths about the gospel in particular this morning. You'll see the word gospel about four or five times just in the first 17 verses. And, and when I think of the word reveal, right, or manifest, reveal, make known, uh, my, where my mind went was, uh, was, um, was Steve, the late Steve Jobs when he would do the big reveals at Apple. Some of y'all might remember those. Whenever they rolled out the, the first iPad or the first iPod or the first iPhone and he would be up there in his trademark all black with the turtleneck and everybody would ooh and ah over all the new technology. And I still think they do those, but just not like it was uh, when Steve Jobs was living and was, and was CEO there. And, you know, there's a risk factor that comes with doing those things. What if everybody does it ooh and ah? What if they're not in, that impressed, right, uh, with what you're presenting? Well, the book of Romans make some pretty big reveals. Not in the sense that they're nowhere else found in Scripture. That's not my point. But in a way that Paul writes the book of Romans in such a way, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these Scriptures in a way that really make you ooh and ah and go wow. Um, the gospel's presented in such a way in the book of Romans that it has a way of just captivating your attention and your heart in kind of a new and fresh way. It's, it's, it's my favorite book of all of the Bible. And one thing's one thing Romans does well is the way it reveals the gospel and the implications of the gospel so clearly, with such clarity. And so Paul really wants you to kind of ooh and ah and wow at the gospel. That's the theme of the book. The gospel is the theme, you might say, of Romans. And as we look at the first 17 verses today, it's my hope this passage will give us a renewed clarity of the gospel, what it does, and its importance, and a new passion to share it with other people. So before we read our text, some things you need to know, uh, is, of course, as I've already mentioned, the Apostle Paul is the writer of this letter. He's writing it to the church at Rome, and Rome was obviously the most significant, in the first century here, most significant Gentile city in all the world at this time, and Paul had yet to go there in his ministry. 
He, he didn't plant this church. You know, most of the letters we have from Paul, he's writing churches that he planted. This was not a church he had planted. It's not even a church that he had visited yet. And at this time, this particular church is made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And most people believe that the majority were likely Gentiles by this time. And so when Paul writes this, he's writing to, to both those groups. But in a lot of ways, it's a little more heavy-handed towards the Gentile believers. So it's a lot to say for us, because if you're, if you're not Jewish this morning, you're a Gentile, right? And so we have a lot to learn from this letter. And as, as we go uh, through our text this morning, I'm going to show us, uh, I want us to see three things that we learn about the gospel this morning from this text, and then one big takeaway uh, for us to apply to our lives today. So look with me. We're going to start there in verses 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It's on the screen for you as well. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's longest hello in all of his letters. And that is those seven verses is basically, hello, my name's Paul. How are you? You know, and, and, and that's, it's his longest one, his longest introduction. And you see there the word gospel right there in the first verse, the gospel of God. And when Paul talks about gospel, uh, the word literally means good news. Sometimes if you're not familiar with that churchy kind of word, we think maybe it's a style of music or something else, but it, it, it's, it means literally good news or good tidings. And he's speaking of the good news of Jesus Christ as opposed to any other good tidings or any other good news. And the announcement of, he's specifically talking about, it's an announcement of what God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. When we say gospel, that's what we mean. What God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. It contains the message of both the person and the work of Christ. What God has done in sending Jesus to live a sinless life, to die, to die a vicarious death for our atonement, bearing our sin, bearing the weight of God's wrath for us, and him being raised from the dead, and even the fact that he's going to return to this earth, that, that's the gospel, right? What God has done and is doing in Jesus and reconciling sinners to himself. Now, the first thing I want you to see here from these first seven verses about the gospel is number one, the gospel is about God's promise and his son. It's according to a promise that is fulfilled in the son. See, the gospel didn't just spring up out of nowhere, Paul wants them to see. The, the Gentile Christians there who weren't raised in the Jewish faith needed to realize that it was the fulfillment of God's promise to both humanity and the Jewish people. The first promise, as you see there, Paul says it's, he said in verse two there, he says, which he set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, right, beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The, the first time we see that promise is in Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, God promises Eve that her offspring will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first promise we see in the Old Testament. That was a prophecy of Christ, the ultimate offspring that would come undo 
and, 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 and undo that what had been done there that day by the serpent and by sin. And then God chose a man named Abraham. When you read Genesis, it moves pretty fast. You get to chapter 12. God chose a man named Abraham who's just pagan and chooses him, saves him, and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, right? And as we know, ultimately, the nation of Israel arises from that man, Abraham's lineage. And in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, one of the times that Abraham is having this dialogue with God, God says, Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his, singular, enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. See, when you read that word offspring, we read it, we, it gets a little confusing because that can be singular. It can, kinda, it can mean multiple. What does it mean? But when he says possesses the gate of his enemies, we know he's pointing to a particular offspring that would come through Abraham's lineage. He's speaking of the Messiah. But that's not the only place. The prophets, you know, the prophet Isaiah, for instance, in the Old Testament, prophesied of uh, the servant of God, he referred to him as, who would come and bear our sin debt, as Isaiah 53 says. Throughout the Old Testament, you have the promise of the coming Messiah. Even, the, even David prophesied in the Psalms of this Messiah. The prophets foretold this. Even the sacrificial system that we see laid out in the book of Leviticus was pointing to him. The, the Old Testament as a whole was pointing to the fact that we need a Redeemer and that a Redeemer, a Savior, would come who would ultimately be our sacrifice that would take away our sins. And So when Jesus arrives on the scene in the New Testament, you have God keeping His promise. That's what He wants the Romans here to know, what He wants us to know. That, that, that this is a promise that's being kept by God. If you want to know this morning that God keeps His promises, you don't have to look any further than Jesus. His coming and His dying and His being raised from the dead is a promise kept by God. You know, I remember as a child, uh, maybe it was just my twisted sort of, um, of logic, but I used to think, I used to remember used to think, you know, there was a difference if you said a lie and if you said a lie after saying, I promise. You shouldn't do either one, but it was just worse, right, if you promise. And then at the same time, I had this logic, you know, if you cross your fingers put them behind your back where whoever you're talking to can't see, then it doesn't even really count as a lie. And the promise doesn't even really count. And this has a way of, of nullifying everything. <coughs> Excuse me. As I thought about that this week, I got to thinking about the fact <clears throat> that we're kind of conditioned from an early age to expect lies, to expect promises to be broken. We break promises. We have promises to us that are broken. And even from, as a small child and we cross our fingers and those sort of things, we just kind of build up this expectation for it because our world is filled with promises that are broken. It's like we're used to people having their fingers crossed behind their backs all the time. We're, we're used to people over-promising and under-delivering. Under In fact, if we all got honest, we've done it in some fashion. And the thing is, God wants you to know throughout the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that God not only makes promises, God keeps promises to the point that His ultimate promise that He has made in redeeming us has been sealed with His blood, the blood of Jesus. And that God made a promise and kept a promise that cost Jesus His life, right? That Jesus willingly came and laid down His life for us. So you can look at Jesus and you can look at the gospel and know that God will never break His promises to you. Every promise you see in Scripture, man, 
It's confirmed and we know it, it, God will fulfill it simply by looking at the cross. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe a spouse or a parent or a friend or a boss has let you down. Maybe you've been lied to, misled, or even mistreated. Maybe the ones who should love you the most have loved you the worst. But it's not so with God. He is a faithful promise keeper. It's a, he has kept his promise. And, but notice it's a promise concerning his son, his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, this promise is concerning that. The, the, the gospel's about Jesus. It's, and it, that, this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was, he says, descended from David according to the flesh. Theologians point out how this points to the humanity of Jesus. He's the rightful heir of David's throne. He has the right human credentials, you might say, lineage. He was born into the right family, all those sort of things, to, to, to be the rightful heir to the throne of David. But at the same time, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit, capital S, of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Scholars here like to point out how this points to Jesus' deity. He's not just David's descendant. He's God's Son, Right? And the spirit of holiness, likely here a reference to the Holy Spirit, he has been declared, right? Declared the Son of God in power. It doesn't mean he became the Son of God. Then that's not the point. No, it's been manifested for us all to see and for all to know that Jesus is the Son of God when we see that he has risen from the dead. And notice the involvement of the entire Trinity here in the gospel. It's the gospel of God, Paul says. It's according to God, God the Father's promise. It's concerning the Son, Jesus Christ. And He was declared, showed to the world to be the Son of God according to the Spirit, right? The Spirit of holiness by His resurrection. You've got the triune God involved here in this good news. Notice verse 5, he says, It is through Jesus that we receive grace, and through Him that Paul became an apostle. An apostle can also speak to the idea of just being sent and on mission in general. And while none of us are apostles, we all have been sent on mission and and it's, it's through Jesus that we're sent on mission. And the purpose of this great mission, Paul says, is the obedience of faith. Obedience of faith. What does he mean by that? Well, we know you're saved by grace through faith. Faith is that conduit through which God's grace flows into our lives and we're saved. And saving faith, as we've said before, is, is never alone in the sense of it always, it, it, we're saved by grace through faith alone, but saving faith is always followed by life change and obedience. It, it it, we, our lives are radically transformed as we believe the gospel. And true faith leads to real obedience, the obedience of faith. As Douglas Moo writes, obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. They just go together. You, you, you can't, if you really obey God, you obey by faith. And if you really have faith, you will ultimately obey. And believers will live a life of obedience and the life of obedience is to be lived by faith and he says this is for the sake of his name among the nations sake of whose name Jesus' name among the nations it's all about the lord jesus it's about people all over the world coming to know jesus for his glory that's what the gospel's about that's what god's mission's about and christianity as we're seeing it's not about it's not about being good enough and we're going to see that laid out very clearly in the book of romans you know, you say, well, we know that. Well, I'm, I'm telling you, you don't know how often we hear that. <laughs> that. That people can go to church for years and still think Christianity is somehow about being good and keeping the rules. That you can talk to someone that's been fairly faithfully attending pretty good churches for 20, 25, 30, 40, 50 years, and you can ask them, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to go to heaven? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? How can you know you're a Christian and say, well, you know, you, you try to obey God. You try to keep his word. You try to obey. The, I've heard this one. Try to keep the Ten Commandments. 
from people who would say they've been Christians for a long time. But Christianity isn't about that. People can go to church for years and think that, but Christianity is in fact about the fact that none of us are good enough. It's about Jesus and his gospel. It's about Christ's goodness, not our goodness. Christianity declares to us that we have not kept the rules. It declares to us only Jesus has kept the rules and that he died and rose again so that we can be saved from the fact that we haven't kept the rules. Christianity is about the gospel and the gospel is about Jesus. And it's God's promise that has been kept to Israel and to humanity at large. Number two, the gospel creates a new community. Notice in verse five there, he says, it's for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite verses in chapter one there, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. People from all nations we see come to faith in Christ through the gospel is that the gospel is preached. And he tells the Romans, including you guys, and he says, they're called to belong to Jesus. Paul wants the Romans to know that they are part of something larger than themselves. People believe the gospel. They become a part of the new community, a new people. And what that's the power of the gospel on display. It creates a new people. As people believe the gospel, they become a part of this new family called the church. Think for a moment how diverse the world around us is. It's really kind of mind-boggling when you think of all the different nations, you think of all the different cultures and languages, the different ways humanity chooses to govern itself, the ways we dress, the language we speak in. The world is about as diverse as you can imagine. Our country's diverse. Orlando's diverse. Think about how diverse the world is. And then think about this, that somehow, that as a believer in Christ, you can have more in common with someone from a different country, different culture, a different way of living, than you have with someone across the street from you because of your common faith in and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the power of the gospel. It creates a brand new people that have a bond that goes beyond the normal human barriers that we think about. The gospel makes us new people. It takes different people from different races and places and cultures and makes us a unified yet diverse people with Jesus in common. Now, the church, this new community, he says, is made up of those who are called to belong to Jesus. And I think Paul's use of the word call here is stronger than what we're used to in our language. He's speaking of a compelling, effectual call. Remember, these people are already saved. He's saying they have been sought and they have been found by God so that they would belong to Jesus. And believers have been called, right? And we're called to belong to Jesus and we make up his people, the church. Verse 7, Paul says we're loved by God and called to be saints, right? God loves us and he set us apart to live holy in this life as his children, as saints of God who are called and set apart for him. Uh, those, th those two things are both true. We are loved by God and set apart to live holy lives in this world. Now, believers many times struggle with the idea of calling. When we see a word like call, and Paul uses it a few times in these verses, we tend to relate it to what we do, right? What does God want me to do with my life? What does God want me to do for him? Sometimes we'll phrase it this way, what is God's will for my life? And we usually relate that to doing, to action. I'll never forget, when I was in 10th grade, we had to take this thing called a career interest inventory test. I've probably shared this with you before and I got my results back, unfailable test, and I failed it, right? Not to be outdone, right? I failed it. It came back and I had like zero to no interest in most things and a little bit of interest in something that has nothing to do with what I do now. 
I struggled even then. What do I need to do, right? Even before I was really a believer, what, 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 do, I, what, do, I need to, what do I need to do? And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we wrestle with that. What should I do? And, and even as a believer, what should I do? What should I do with my life? And I have found the most important things that God wants us to concern ourselves with is who he's called us to be. And Paul says, first thing you need to know, Romans, you are called to belong to Jesus. He's called you to be someone who belongs to Christ. Our identity is in Christ and in the family of God. That is, that is the most significant thing about you. It's more important than what you do. So whether you're a salesman or a doctor or a nurse or a broker or a manager or a homemaker or a preacher or a retiree, you are first and foremost called to belong to Jesus. And because he has called you to himself and done that, he did that through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. When the gospel was preached to you and shared to you, the Holy Spirit moved in your heart and placed your faith in Christ. You're called to belong to him. Starting in verse 8, Paul addresses his reason for writing and his words. He tells us more about the gospel community, the gospel people, the gospel forms us into. Look at verse 8. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 13. He says, first, I thank, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And by harvest there, he's not talking about a financial harvest. He's talking about, he wants to see people come to know the Lord. He wants to see them grow and mature. He's talking about spiritual harvest. Now, we learned some things about how the gospel community, this new people that God has created that, that respond to the gospel, how it functions. The first thing we learn is, is prayer. How we pray for one another. He says, I've been, I've been praying for you. Paul belongs to Jesus. They belong to Jesus. They've both been set apart by Jesus. And he says, he says, I've been praying for you, thanking God for you and praying for you. And I want you to know that. There's, there's nothing that shows more that we belong to Jesus and, to, and that we belong to his people and that we love one another like prayer. Jesus' people are praying people. But the other thing I want you to see is, is mutual encouragement. That's another way we, we function together. Verses 11 and 12 point that out. He's, he wants to see them, that he can bless them and that they can bless him, that they, their faith would encourage one another. See, he talks here about, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. He don't, he don't really mean here that I'm going to give you a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit does that. He's talking about, I, I, he's talking about spiritual gift here is, is not the way we normally think about it. He means a gift of a spiritual nature, nature, a way that he could serve them that would somehow encourage their faith. But he wants it to be mutual. He says, I think I can also be encouraged by your faith. And that's how the family of God works. We encourage one another. You see that in Hebrews 10. Uh, we looked at this verse several months ago. We're to be not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another more and more as the day draws near. So that's, just a, that's a core part of what we do as believers. We build one another's faith. And I want to ask you, when you read this, do you find it strange that the Apostle Paul, right, stalwart of the faith, would write to a bunch of believers in Rome that he had never met and say, I'm hopeful that we can be mutually encouraged? That... that my faith will not only encourage you, but you will encourage and strengthen and, and, and I will grow spiritually from being around you. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul, right? 
I mean, he has met Jesus, faith, the resurrected Christ, face to face on the bright light, right? Blinded, road to Damascus, got the most compelling conversion experience that we read in all of the New Testament. Writes much of the New Testament. The most famous Christian to ever live. And he looks at a bunch of Christians at some little church in Rome and he says, I'm really hoping that when I get there, you'll encourage and strengthen my faith. Because Paul knew something that we need to know and that is this, we need each other. It's an amazing thing about the people of God. We all learn and grow and inspire by each other. It doesn't matter how, how, how long you've been in the faith or how mature you are, how immature you are. We all need and we all grow and we all sharpen one another, encourage each other's faith. Last week we had a, um, a trip for our Cuba mission trip that's coming up in June. And we had a gentleman that came in and he spoke to us. And he's been to Cuba over 50 times, right? And he said something at the end of that meeting that he had said to me already on the phone. And he said this, he said, you know, generally speaking, teams from Florida... Florida Baptists all over, get together and they, they decide to go to Cuba with the idea that we're going to go there and we're going to make an impact and we're going to do something. We're going to help these people. We're going to serve these people. We're going to bless these people. And he says, but what ends up happening is you are the ones that end up getting impacted. We are the ones that end up getting blessed. Not that they don't, but we, we go expecting to give, but we also receive. And, that's, and, that's, and we look at, you know, the people look at a place like Cuba and they go, you know, communist country, people don't have a lot. They're living on very little compared to what we live on. We're going to go there and be a blessing, and we can be. But don't miss this. They bless us as well. And they challenge and help grow our faith as well. That's the way the family of God works. That we all help serve one another and that God uses us in each other's lives, even between Paul and Rome, between us here together, and us and people and believers in Cuba. The point is, in the church, there's no one you can't learn from and be encouraged by this morning. And no one who can't encourage the faith of someone else this morning. Listen, you may feel like you don't have a role or a lot to offer in the church, but you do if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. No matter your age, you're not too young, you're not too old. No matter your age of spiritual maturity, you've not been a Christian too short of a time or too long of a time. Through faith in Jesus, you're a part of the family, and that's what family does. We help one another, and we all have a role. You're a part of this new gospel people that have been created by believing the gospel. Now look with me at verse 14. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. And I'm going to read through verse 17. Paul says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The third thing I want us to see about the gospel is that the gospel has life-changing power. Life-changing power. In verse 15, notice, he says he's eager to preach the gospel to who? To those in Rome. In other words, not just to the lost people of Rome, but to the believers in Rome. He wants to preach the gospel to them too. In other words, believers, we don't stop needing the gospel. As we've said before, old quote from Tim Keller, it's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. It's the pool we swim in. And you don't stop needing to hear it as a believer or to apply it as a believer. As you grow and mature spiritually, the way that happens is by the gospel being more deeply pressed into your heart and believed and applied to your life. You know, no doubt. I could stand up and preach a very clear gospel sermon and someone in this room 
because you're human and you're like me probably, you'll think, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. And I get that. I get that. We've all got people that we wish they were here to hear that, but don't miss this. Paul's excited to preach the gospel to the Christians who are there because we need it too. You need it. You need simple gospel messages. You need to hear about the old rugged cross and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You need to hear the call to repent and believe. And you need to hear all the implications of the gospel because it's from gazing at that that we learn that God's a generous God and we become more generous. And we learn that we're bought with the blood of Christ so therefore we desire to live pure lives. We look at that and we see that God is righteous and we want to become more righteous and godly. The gospel is transformative. So we need it. And a church that only thinks that people out there need the gospel will never reach people out there with the gospel. If we don't first internalize this need, we'll never take it to others. Verse 16, the word salvation, he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That word for salvation, soteria, can also mean to deliver or to rescue. It means all those things, right? Save delivered, rescued. The gospel is how God saves, delivers, and rescues sinners. It's life-changing. The gospel saves you from God's wrath. It delivers you from sin's stronghold. It rescues you from your own devices. It saves, it delivers, it rescues. And some of you know exactly what I mean. Hopefully all of us have experienced this morning. You've felt the weight of sin. You've, you've felt the guilt, the shame, the burden that comes with being far from God and realizing you're far from God. And hearing the law of God and how we fall short. You know what it means also though to have that burden lifted. To know that the guilty have gone free in Christ Jesus. That shame has been wiped away. And that you've been set free, delivered, and rescued. That's gospel work. It's the gospel that does that. It's the power of God unto salvation. See, when we believe the gospel... We get saved is what Paul's saying. It's the power of God unto salvation. We get rescued. We get delivered. And we're saved from something, right? Sin, death, hell, ourselves. But we also get saved to something. God never saved anyone from sin that he didn't save to righteousness. You're saved from and you're saved to. That's the life change that the gospel produces when it rescues you, when God rescues you through the declaration of what he's done in Jesus. And Paul's saying, we can be saved. And implicitly, he's inferring, we need to be, right? It's the power of God unto salvation. Well, why do we need that? Because we need to be saved. And we don't like to think of ourselves as in need of much of anything. That's human nature. We don't like to admit we're lost. Back around Christmas, we went to see family in Alabama. And uh, we were on the interstate. I don't think I've shared this, but we... There was a bad wreck in front of us a mile or so ahead, and we were probably looking at sitting on the interstate for two hours. And we had already been on the road with three small children for, you know, 11 hours. And so we decided to try to take a different way. So we jumped off the interstate. We began to drive looking for a way, and we quickly realized we didn't have cell service in this part of Alabama. Thank you, T-Mobile. But uh, what are we going to do? We say, well, pull out that. Listen, I was born in 1980. I don't know how to, I don't know how to read an atlas. Or a map. <laughs> I used to. I've forgotten. Right? That's on my phone now. I don't have a GPS. I got a phone. Right? It does all that for me. And even though I might sound like it, I don't know all the nooks and crannies of Alabama. <laughs> and so we pulled into a drugstore and went inside and became deeply dependent upon the knowledge of a local teenage girl <laughs> to make sure we didn't run out of gas and we found our way home. And I didn't like that. 
No offense to her. Didn't trust it, didn't like it, and as quickly as my cell signal came back, we threw those away and began to follow the way of ways. And so um, we don't like, though, to admit we're lost. We don't, like to, we don't like to ask for help. Humanity doesn't like to do that. But we're, the gospel points and shows us that we are in desperate need of spiritual help. But we've got to admit that we're in need. We can't experience the transforming power of the gospel, the saving power of the gospel, without first admitting that we need it. And listen, your spiritual growth can be halted if you stop thinking you need it, hear it, and believe it, and apply it. If you take your eyes off Jesus. See, the gospel can change your life because it is the power of God. It's the power of God and the salvation. The word there, dunamis, is where we get our word dynamite. That's the word he uses for power. So obviously, they didn't have dynamite back then, but it's, it's this word that we use for dynamite. It's the, it's the, it speaks to the energy, the power the gospel has that comes from God. The gospel is how God expresses his power to save. It, it's the word from, it, it, it's, it's a word that it, it just contains so much. It's God flexing his muscle, if you will, to show that he can say it's done in the gospel. It's not, it doesn't just tell you about the power of God. It doesn't just link you to the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When the gospel is preached, when the gospel is shared, when the gospel is heard, God is at work. God is at work because it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel can change your life. It offers exclusive life change and it offers inclusive life change. He says, first of all, he says, it's the power of God unto salvation for those who what? Believe. So it's exclusive. Your life will not be changed by the gospel without believing the gospel. The call in the Bible is to repent and believe to place your faith in Christ, to stop trusting yourself, to stop trusting any inkling that you in any way can be good enough and to rest in what Jesus has done and what he's done alone to save you. Faith, belief in Christ. But also it's inclusive. He says it's for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jew first here likely speaks to the fact that the promise came through Israel and Christ came what first to them as the Jewish Messiah. But anyone, if they will trust Christ, can be saved. It's also for the Greek, which is speaking here to all the rest of us. It doesn't matter your race, your nationality, your background, or how big a sinner you are, or how little a sinner you think you are, or how moral you are. If you'll believe the gospel, no matter what kind of life you've lived up until that point, if you'll believe the gospel, you can be saved. So it's, it's exclusive. It's only for the believer, but it's inclusive. It invites all who will believe to come and be saved. But notice verse 17. Here's the heart of this passage. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, theologians debate what that means. I didn't realize how debated that was. But it's one of those things that people have all these different views. Let me give you three main views that we hear of that. First of all, it can speak to how God's righteousness as an attribute is made known in the gospel. And that's certainly true. In the gospel, we see that God is righteous and just, and through the cross, he is able to both be righteous and just while forgiving sinners. So it does obviously display that attribute, but it can also point to God's saving activity as a righteous act. You see it used that way in the Old Testament. And it obviously is. God's saving of his people is a righteous act. But it can also, and probably here primarily speaks to the fact that God makes sinners righteous. When they, it reveals how we can be made righteous when we put our faith in Christ. In Jesus, we get to be made righteous through faith in him. Sinners are made right with God. And we receive the righteousness of God. The very righteousness of Christ clothes our life. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, When he made him to be sin, Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And all these things happen. And much of the heart of Romans is this. In Christ, you can be made righteous in the eyes of God. 
The gospel doesn't just change your life here. It changes your life in the sense of it changes your standing with God. It does that first and foremost. You go from being an enemy to a friend to being a family member. You go from being a sinner to being righteous. And notice it's from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's point here seems to be the only way to receive it is by faith. And all the Christian life is then lived by faith. Not just a one-time act. We continue in faith. I know I'm a believer, not just because I can tell you there was a time in my life when I placed my faith in Jesus, but because all these years later, my faith is still in Jesus. I don't have to just go back to a moment in time. I can look and go, I've got present faith in Christ who rescues me from my sin. It's about faith from faith and for faith. And as we continue to grow and mature in Christ, that happens through faith. The Christian life is a life of faith. And the gospel continues to transform our lives as we trust in Christ. Now listen, our only hope is the gospel. It's not willpower, moralism, or religion, or achievement, or birthright. Being saved from sin, death, and hell is only found in believing Jesus Christ, believing on Him who died for our sins and rose again. Apart from that, we are hopeless. And as believers, this same gospel is still our only hope. If we're to grow in Christ, live by faith, by obedience, for His glory, it will be because God's grace will be faithfully applied to our lives as we believe through faith in the gospel. See, everyone needs the gospel. We need the gospel and our neighbors need the gospel. And this is why, here's our big takeaway, we got to share the gospel. We got to share the gospel. It's our only hope. In verse 14, Paul says, I'm under obligation to share it to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. He says, I'm even eager to do so. Paul here is speaking most likely of the, the learned and the unlearned. You know, a barbarian in their time was anyone not basically fluent in Greek. It was kind of their first century redneck, okay? And he said, I don't care if you're, you're, if you're real learned or if you're a redneck, I want to share the gospel with you in Rome. Paul's point is simple. I must preach the gospel to everybody. I'm compelled to, I'm obligated to. And as an apostle, he was specifically called by Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It didn't matter what kind of Gentile you are, foolish or wise or learned, Greek or, or barbarian. He says, I'm obligated because I've been called. And he's, he's got this unique compulsion on his life. But listen, we all have an obligation. We're all compelled to share the gospel. And in verses 14 through 16, we see Paul say he's obligated to share the gospel. We see Paul say he's eager to share the gospel. And we see Paul say he's unashamed to share the gospel. But I fear many times we feel no obligation, we have no eagerness, and we venture on being ashamed. And so we're silent. And as we close, I want to share three ways we cultivate that silence in our lives. Taken right here from this passage, I believe, looking at it inversely. Three ways we cultivate gospel silence. Avoid, number one is avoiding responsibility. See, Paul felt obligated, responsible, because God had called him and commissioned him to do this. The people needed it too. They needed the gospel. didn't matter whether they were wise or, or foolish. They, they needed the gospel and he had an obligation to share it. And could it be the reason we don't share our faith more is because we refuse to take responsibility. First, for God's command to make disciples and to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. And secondly, because we think that's somebody else's job, a leader in the church or the pastors or whoever. Or secondly, we refuse to take responsibility for our neighbor. Let me tell you, if we're called to love our, if the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, you cannot and I cannot fulfill it if we don't share our, the gospel with our neighbors. If what they need most is the gospel, how can we say we love them if we don't give them that? And we are responsible to God and we are responsible for our neighbors and sharing the gospel with them. 
So the first way we cultivate a heart of silence instead of a heart of sharing is by avoiding responsibility. The second way is by tolerating apathy. Paul says he was eager to share the gospel. He was excited. There was no apathy about the things of God. The gospel of Christ here, he, 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 he wants to share. He's eager to talk about it. And to be honest, some of us, we struggle here with just being apathetic towards it. We all do if we're not careful. We're all capable of it. But no one's apathetic about everything. Have you ever noticed that? We can be eager to be entertained. We can be eager to retire. We can be eager to, eager to vacation, eager to advance in our career, eager to start a family, eager to make more money. Paul says, I'm eager to share the gospel. Are we eager to share the gospel? Are we apathetic towards the things of God and towards the gospel? Listen, apathy will creep into all of our lives, even the lives of leaders, but we've got to repent of that. The gospel is too good. Our neighbors are too lost. Eternity is too long. Hell is too real for us to be apathetic about the gospel and the things of God. We have to kill apathy. How do we kill apathy? Well, first of all, we, we get in God's word. We, we meditate on the gospel. We spend time with God's people. We pray, but don't miss this one. We think about all those things, and then you do something with the gospel. Right? The quickest way to get unapathetic about it, I'm just telling you, is to start doing something with it talking about it and sharing it, ripping off the band-aid and just jumping out there. That's the quickest way to kill apathy. So we tolerate apathy. That's the one way we cultivate the second way we cultivate a heart of silence. And lastly, fearing man. Paul says he's unashamed. Why would someone even be tempted to be unashamed or to be ashamed with the gospel? Well, let me tell you why. Paul tells us in his other writings, to the Jews the cross was a stumbling block and to the Gentiles it was foolishness. Let me ask you, do you think people didn't mock what believers believed in the first century? Do you think they only mocked believers in the Western world in 2019? They called them cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. They, were, they called them cannibals. In, in Rome, in the years ahead, after Paul would write this, they would be falsely blamed for burning the city under Nero, and many of them would be killed. The Apostle Paul would ultimately die in Rome for his faith. Listen, both Jews and Gentiles had issues with believers in that day and, and what they believed. That's always been an issue. It's the moment Jesus came. And today, there are some people that will still mock. They mock believers for what they believe about marriage, for what we believe about sexuality, for what we believe about abortion that we spoke about last week. We're accused of being stuck in the past or on the wrong side of history or anti-this or anti-that. And I get it. Some folks just want to shut us up. Everybody's not like that. But there are people that, that really do think that. But here's what we have to remember. And in a culture that wants to silence that, we've been given the power of God unto salvation. We believe it in our hearts and we have it on our lips. And those people that mock us need us to love them. They need us to love them enough to respond to them in kindness. They need us to love them enough to share Jesus with them in love and with kindness and with sincerity and earnestness. So we don't need to fear people and what people think. People need Jesus. If you think people, listen, if you think people are going to think you're a religious nut, if you talk to them about Jesus, and if that kind of holds you back, just talking to myself too here, then you are struggling with the fear of man. And Proverbs says the fear of man is a snare snare. Jesus said, don't fear man who can kill your body, but fear him, God, who can both destroy the body and soul in hell. Don't fear man. The way we kill the fear of man is by fearing God. The way you show you fear God is by obeying 
So one way we're going to take responsibility in 2019 and slay apathy and forsake the fear of man is a campaign we're participating in that we're going to invite you to be a part of called Who's Your One? It's a campaign we're partnering with churches all over the Southern Baptist Network that we're a part of. Churches all over the country are doing this this year and we're going to jump on board. And the way it works is I'm asking each of us to think about one person in 2019 that you can pray for, build a relationship with, invite the church, share the gospel with. Right? Just one, just one, just imagine if every person in the room led one person to Christ in 2019 in the soccer game. I said, what would that be like? I'm telling you, it would be the greatest evangelistic year that this church has had in decades. Decades. It would be transformational. If all the churches participating in this, if just 50% of the people did this, it would change the face of our nation in many ways. We would be experiencing what would feel like a third great awakening if this was to happen. So yeah, who's, who's your one? So I want you to take the next week and a few weeks if you need to and pray about it. And starting next week, you'll be able to let us know who to partner with you with that you're going to be praying for. And in fact, you're going to be given a card. And you'll be able to write down multiple names. Hopefully, you'll have more people that you're praying for than just one. But then there's going to be that, that one person that you're really praying for and trying to reach. So next week, you'll get those cards and we'll begin that process. And as we close, I just want us to remember what Paul is saying to us here. The gospel's been revealed from heaven. It's good news. God has kept his promise in Jesus Christ. He's made us family. The gospel's brought us together, a new family, a new church that he's made us. And that gospel has the power to change our lives and our neighbors' lives. But it will not do that if we don't believe it, apply it, and share it. We've got to share the gospel. Let's pray.